Chapter Eight of Laramie Holds the Range by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Eight, The Home of Laramie. Almost due north of Sleepy Cat, the lodgepole mountains, tumbling over one another in an upheaval southward, are flung suddenly to the west and spread in a declining ridge to the superstition range south of the lodge poles the country is very rough but at the point where the range is so sharply deflected there spreads fan-like to the east an open basin with good soil and water it is known locally as the falling wall country and as the names of the region indicate it was once famous as a hunting ground and so as a fighting ground for the powerful tribes of early days and an ample reservation in this basin ending just where the good lands began is the stamping ground of the last of the mountain red men but the struggle for possession of the falling wall country did not end with the red men white men too have coveted the lands of the falling wall and fought for them among the blind the one-eyed are kings and the falling wall basin lies amid inhospitable deserts barren hills and landscapes slashed to rags and ribbons by mountain storms regions that have failed to tempt even a white man's cupidity the indians fought for the basin with arrows bullets tomahawks and scalping knives the whites have fought chiefly in the land offices and courts but exasperated by delays and inflamed by defeat they have at times boiled over and appealed to the rifle and the hip holster for decrees to quiet title it is for these reasons and others that the falling wall country has borne a hard and somewhat sinister name even in a region where men have been habitually indifferent to restraint and tolerant of violent appeals to frontier justice in the very early days of the white man the indian clung to the falling wall country as his last stand for the bad lands along the canyons of the falling wall river made as they yet make an almost impenetrable fastness for sally and retreat but even before the Indians were driven into this barren cage to the north, white adventurers had penetrated the basin, and it became, with the shifting of possession, a region for men of hard repute. Its traditions have been bad, and few in the falling wall country have felt concern over the fact. Yet from the earliest days, despite the many difficulties of living in the widely known but not large park, a few hardy settlers managed from the beginning in secluded portions of the region to keep their scalps and their horses and to live through indian days and outlaw days though not often in peace and never in quiet among these early adventurers was one known as texas laramie because he had the extraordinary courage or hardihood to bring into the falling wall the first cattle ever driven into the mountains from the panhandle in a country where the sobriquet is usually the only name by which it is courteous or safe to address a man and where it is invariably apt few men are accorded two 
but laramie was also known as plump laramie because he brought into that country the first winchester rifle and the instinctive significance the mind attaches to the combination of cows and a repeating rifle was in this instance justified there was between the two a direct even dynamic connection laramie thus figured prominently in the older falling wall feuds it would have been difficult for him to figure obscurely and do it more than once enemies said that he stole the bunch of cattle he first drove into the falling wall it was not true but it made a good story and in any event texas laramie defended his steers vigorously against all men advancing claim to them between darkness and daylight as enterprising neighbors not infrequently undertook to do with the cattle laramie had brought into the mountains a wife from texas she was a young mother with a little boy jim a good mother never happy in the country so far away from the staked plain and not very long to live there but she lived long enough to send jim year after year to the sisters school on the reservation to obtain for a boy any sort of education in a region so wild and so inhospitable would have seemed impossible yet devoted sisters refined and aristocratic american women were already in this mountain country devoting their lives to the indian missions under such women little jim learned his catechism and his reading and from them and their example a few of the amenities of life so far removed from him in every other direction under their care he grew up after he lost his mother among the indian boys with these he learned to fish and hunt to trap for pocket money to use a bow and arrow and a knife to trail and stalk patiently to lie uncomplaining and cold and wet to ride without saddle or bridle or spur to face a grizzly without excitement to use a rifle where the price of every cartridge was reckoned and a poor aim sometime cost life itself and every summer at home his father added extension courses in the saddle and bridle spur hackamore and lariat to his education he taught him to rope throw and mark to use a coffee pot and frying pan and at last on the great day the commencement day so to say of the boy's frontier education he presented him with his degree a colt's revolver and a box of cartridges and died as he lay on his deathbed texas laramie left a parting advice to his young son you've learned to shoot jim you don't shoot bad for a youngster a man's got to shoot but the less shooting you do after you've learned without your force to it mind you the more comfortable you'll feel when you get where i am now all i can say is i never killed an honest man that i knowed of in fact his breath came very slowly i never yet seen an honest man in the falling wall to kill and jim began life with the ranch youth a little bunch of cattle no money and much health in the falling wall his first year alone he never forgot for in the spring he drove all his steers not a great many into the new railroad town south sleepy cat 
and sold them for more money than he had ever seen at one time in his life. He wandered from the bank into Harry Tennyson's gambling rooms, Harry having sold out his livery stable to Joe Kitchen shortly before that, just to look on for a little while before starting home. When Laramie did start home, Tennyson had all his steer money, and Laramie owed the sober-faced gambler, besides, one hundred dollars. Laramie then went to work on the range for twenty-five dollars a month. He worked four months, and it was hard work, took his paycheck in, and handed it to Tennyson. That was, strangely enough, the beginning of a friendship that was never broken. Tennyson tried to give the check back to Laramie. He could not. But Laramie never again tried to clean out the bank at Tennyson's. The Laramie cabin on Turkey Creek, the sun built afterward on the same spot, stood on a slight conical rise some distance back from the little stream that watered the ranch. From his windows, Jim Laramie could look on gently falling ground in all directions. Toward the creek lay an alfalfa field, which, with a crude irrigating ditch and water from the creek, he had brought to a prosperous stand. Below the alfalfa stood the barn and the corral. The day after K. Doubleday's adventure with him at the junction, Laramie was riding up the creek to his cabin when a man standing at the corral gate hailed him. It was Ben Simmerall. Ben, old and ragged, met every man with a smile, a bearded, seamed, and shabby smile, but an honest smile. Ben was a derelict of the range, a stray whose appeal could be only to patient men. Whenever he wandered into the falling wall country where he had a claim, he made Laramie's cabin a sort of headquarters and spent weeks at a time there, looking after the stock in return for what John Lefevre termed the curtsies of the ranch. Laramie, greeting Ben, made casual inquiry about the stock. Ben looked at him as if expectant, but Ben was not aggressive for news or anything else. He grinned as he looked Laramie over. "'Well, you're back again, Jim,' Laramie responded in kindly fashion. "'Anybody been here?' "'Nary critter,' declared the custodian. "'Except Abe Hawk, he came over to borrow your marlin rifle. "'What did he want with that?' "'Said he was going up into the mountains, "'but he's coming over again before he starts. "'I knowed he helped you track them wire scouts over to Barb's. "'The blame critters tore off all wire to the other side of the creek, too.' "'Get any track of them?' he asked, sympathetically alive to what had been most on Laramie's mind when he had started from home. Laramie barely hesitated, but he looked squarely at Ben and answered in even tones, "'No track, Ben.' Ben looked at him, still smiling with a kindly hope. "'Hear from the contest on the creek quarter? They told me in Medicine Ben it had gone against me. Show." Never. You've got another go to Washington, ain't he? Laramie nodded and got down from his horse. Ben, removing the saddle, asked more questions, none of them important. And after putting up the horse, the two men started for the house. Its rude walls were well laid up in good logs on which rested a timbered roof shingled. 
a living room with a fireplace roughly fashioned in stone made up the larger interior of the cabin to the right of the fireplace a kitchen opened off the living room and adjoining this to the right as one entered the front door was a bedroom to the left stood a small table on which were scattered a few old books a metal lamp and well-thumbed copies of old magazines beside the table stood a heavy oak morris chair of the kind sold by mail-order houses two other chairs heavily built in oak were disposed about the room and on the left of the entrance there was but one door stood a cot bed on the floor between the door and the fireplace lay a huge silver-tip bearskin the head set up by an indian taxidermist it was some time afterward when kate saw the cabin that she remembered even after it lay in ruins just how the interior had looked the four walls were really more furnished than the rest of the room to the right and left of the fireplace hung twin bighorn heads and elk and stag antlers on the other walls supplied racks for an ample variety of rifles polished by familiar use and kept through love of trusty friends in good order trophies of the hunt disposed sometimes in effective and sometimes in mere man fashion flanked the racks and showed the tastes of the owner of the isolated habitation for few trails led within miles of laramie's ranch on the turkey breakfast Cimarron looked at his companion who stood vacantly musing at the door of the kitchen coffee answered laramie taking off his jacket laying his colt on the table and slipping off his breast harness i got no bread announced ben to forestall objection flour's low and i didn't bake crackers will do ain't no crackers neither returned ben raising his voice and his smile in self-defense gimme coffee and bacon suggested laramie impatiently and i'll fry some potatoes muttered ben shuffling with a show of speed into the kitchen and calling inquiries back in his unsteady voice to the living room patiently digging at laramie for scraps of news from sleepy cat volunteering in return scraps from the range and ranch laramie sat down in the nearest chair tilted it slightly back and resting one arm on the table gazed into the empty fireplace he appeared as if much preoccupied nor would nor could he talk of what was on his mind nor think of anything else some minutes later he began in the same absent-minded manner on a huge plateful of bacon with a pot of coffee in keeping and was eating in silence when the stillness of the sunshine was broken by the sound of a horse's hoofs laramie looked out and saw through the open door a horseman riding in leisurely fashion up from the creek the man was tall he swung lightly out of his saddle near the door and as he walked into the house it could be seen that he was proportioned in his frame to his height strength and agility revealed themselves in every move a rifle slung in a scabbard hung beside the shoulder of the horse and the man's rig proclaimed the cowboy though aside from a broad-brimmed stetson hat his garb was simplicity itself 
It was the way in which he carried his height and shoulders that arrested attention, nor was his face one easily to be forgotten. He wore a jet-black beard that grew close and dropped compactly down. He was neither bushy nor scraggly, and with his black brows it made a striking setting for strong and rather deep-set eyes, which, if not actually black, were certainly very dark. His smile revealed white regular teeth under his dark moustache, and his olive complexion, though tanned, seemed different from those of men that rode the range with him. Perhaps it was owing to the glossy black beard. Abe Hawk was evidently at home in Laramie's cabin. He stepped through the door and, pushing his hat back on his forehead, took a chair and sat down. The two men, masters of taciturnity, looked at each other while this was taking place, and as Hawk seated himself, Laramie called for a cup and pushed the coffee-pot toward his visitor. Paying no attention to the unspoken invitation, Hawk's features assumed the quizzical lines they sometimes wore when he relaxed and poked questions at his friend. "'Well,' he demanded, batteringly, "'where's Jimmy been?' "'Medicine, sleepy cat, pretty near everywhere. "'I hear you got a job.' "'I was offered one.' "'Deputy Marshal, eh? "'Farrell Kennedy got me down to Medicine Bend to talk it over.' "'What's the matter? Couldn't you hold it?' "'I didn't want it.' "'You're out of practice with this law and order stuff. "'You've lived up here too long among thieves, Jim. "'Find out who tore down your wire?' "'Laramie replied in even tones, but his voice was hard. "'I trailed them across the crazy woman. "'It was somebody from Doubleday's ranch.' They had a story at Stormy Gorman's you'd gone over there to blow Barb's head off. Barb wasn't home. Hawk was conscious of the evasion. Was Stormy's talk true? he demanded curtly. I expected to ask Barb whether he wanted to put my wire back. I was going to give him a chance. It would have been hard to guess how that would come out. Where was he? asked Hawk with evident disappointment. They said he was in Sleepy Cat. I rode in and missed him there. He had gone to the mines. I took the train up to the junction. There I accidentally got switched off my job and came home. How'd you get switched off? asked Hawk, resenting the outcome. Laramie's manner showed he disliked being bored into. He leaned forward with a touch of asperity and looked straight at his visitor. "'By not tending strictly to my own business, Abe.' Hawk knew from the expression of Laramie's eyes he must drop the subject, and though he lost none of his bantering manner, he desisted. "'They didn't have a warrant for me down at the marshal's office, did they?' "'They were short of blanks,' retorted Laramie coolly. "'How are you fixed for flour?' "'Plenty of it,' Laramie spoke loudly for fear Cimarron might protest." Then he called promptly to the kitchen. Ben, get up some flour for Abe. Ben quavered a protest. Get it up now before you forget it, insisted Laramie. Is Tom Stone still foreman over at Doubleday's? I guess he is, returned Laramie. 
"'What does Doubleday aim to do with Stone?' asked Hawk cynically. "'Steal his own cattle from himself?' "'A cattleman nowadays might as well steal his own cattle as to wait for somebody else to steal it,' Laramie spoke with some annoyance. "'There's going to be trouble for these falling-wall rustlers.' "'Meaning me?' asked Hawk contemptuously. "'I never mean you without saying you, Abe. You ought to know that by this time.' but this running off steers is getting too raw. From the under-talking sleepy cat, there's going to be something done. Who by? By the cattlemen. I thought, Hawk spoke again, contemptuously, you meant by the sheriff. But I didn't, said Laramie. I meant by the bunch at the range, and when they start, they'll stir things up over this way. Hawk hazarded a guess on another subject. It looks like Van Horn putting in stone over at Double Days. It is Van Horn. Hawk looked in silence out of the open door at the distant snow-capped mountains. Why don't you kill him, Jim? he asked after a moment, possibly in earnest, possibly in jest, for his iron tone sometimes meant everything, sometimes nothing. Laramie, at all events, took the words lightly. He answered Hawk's question with another, but his retort and manner were as easy as Hawk's question, and expression was hard. Why don't you? The bearded man across the table did not hesitate, nor did he cast about for words. On the contrary, he replied with an embarrassing promptness, I will, sometime. A man that didn't know you, Abe, might think you meant it commented Laramie, filling his coffee cup. Hawk's white teeth showed just for the instant that he smiled. Then he talked of other things. End of chapter 8